I think we realize as, as people that something significant happens when we die. Now, I know in a lot of ways that, that may seem very elementary to say that something significant happens when we die. But I really think that as people, we realize that this significant, powerful thing is more than just our departing from this world, whether we're saved or unsaved. When we breathe our last breath before stepping off the planet into eternity, I think we realize that at our death we have one final moment with which we can influence all of those we've come in contact with. We have one chance to make our final wishes known to everyone in such a way that it can't be revoked. In essence, we're able to impose our personal will on others through our last will and testament. I think people, believers and unbelievers of life, recognize this. This significant thing that happens when we die. I think we all recognize the fact that, that at that moment there, at my funeral and at the reading of my will, I've got you one time where I have your attention. If I die and Terry Hancock is still alive, she is going to preach my funeral. And you need to be ready for the long haul. Because I told her, don't stop till everybody's saved. That's there. <laughs> I don't care if you get mad at me at that point, because I'm dead. <laughs> but you know, that's the thing that really hits me, you know. And, and how many times do we make funerals such a, a, a thing about the gospel? It's because we have people's attention. We have them there listening and, and I think everybody realizes this. I mean, my mom even understood this, and she wasn't mentally well. Now, you might say, wow, that's pretty bold for you to say your mom wasn't mentally well. My mom took her own life. And I don't think people who are in a good place take their own life. I love my mom, okay? But my mom wasn't, wasn't mentally well at the time that she died. She took her own life. And, but she recognizes this significant thing of, of death because she had not prepared beforehand. And so what she did was got a, a piece of paper out and did a hand-scribbled last will and testament that unfortunately wasn't legal in the state in which she resided. And I would actually say fortunately because of what that last will and testament actually said. See, the last will and testament is this thing that's legally binding. And it cannot be revoked as long as it was put in place uh, in a correct manner inside of our society. And, but this isn't just restricted to our society. It's been this way around the world. I mean, think about how a last will and testament typically starts. I, Jerry Breedlove, being of sound mind and body, do hereby, right? 
We have to establish that we're of sound mind and body when we make this. I mean, a last will and testament is not something that we do on the spur of the moment. It's not something we do when we've had the car crash and we're laying there thinking we're going to die and we try to scribble out a last will and testament. This is something that we have to go through and do and perform at a time when things are clear to us, when our mind is clear, when the pain and all those things aren't surrounding us. People contest wills all the time because they say the person wasn't in their right mind when they made this will. Typically that happens when people don't like how the will was was, uh, laid out. (laughs) Like if they'd have been in their right mind, they'd have left it all to me. But uh, the question I want to deal with today for us is where did the idea of a last will and testament come from? Is this something that we thought up as Americans? Is it something we thought up as Christians? Is it something that just people in general thought of? Or does it come from some other place or from some other person? The author of Hebrews seems to believe the concept was something implemented by God long before we existed. So I want you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9 starting in verse 15. We're going to be reading Hebrews 9, 15 through 22. Now, this is one of those sermons, okay? What I mean by one of those sermons is it's going to take a little while for it to all click and for you to see how it all fits together and why it matters to us today. But I want to establish first this concept that the last will and testament is something God has done, and then I'm going to give you three different applications of that. Three different applications. Yeah, you know what I just tried to say. Three different applications of that principle of the last will and testament that God is doing. So here's what it says in Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For when a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, the book of, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool, and, with scarlet wool, sorry, and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that is, that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled the blood both on the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, like I said, today is one of those sermons, Lord, where I feel like we start kind of with an abstract concept and try to bring it into a place where where it makes sense on how it applies to our lives today. Lord, I pray your spirit would take over in this message. Lord, if I'm going to preach something that's not what you want me to preach, Lord, strike it from my mind, Lord. But if it is from you, Lord, bring it all to remembrance that your people can hear from you today and be encouraged. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. So, when we look at, we read this passage it seems obvious to some people as they read this passage that we're taught that God's talking about covenants with different groups of people, right? I mean, let's look at the first few verses here, right? Here's what he says. 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So, you see, it's like, okay, we're talking about two different covenant groups of people. We're talking about two different uh, promises that God has made. Now, others would say, as we continue to read on in this passage, that what we're talking about is the last will and testament, right? Because it goes on to say this, right? For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, right? And he goes on to explain this. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So some people are going, we're talking about two different covenants, and some people are going to know we're talking about last wills and testaments, right? We, we see that the, the way the language is there in the English, right? But if we read the original passage in the original Greek, we would notice that God is talking about both things because they're one and the same, or at least they're so closely related that we can't separate them. If we read it in the Greek. In verses 15 through 22, in the English, covenant appears four times. Will appears twice. So that is six occurrences. That is six occurrences of the word covenant or will in this short passage of Scripture. Repetitious words in a passage of Scripture are often included to the intended meaning. So let's talk about a little inductive Bible study method real quick. You see in a passage of Scripture, you see a word repeated over and over and over again, you need to hone in on that thing. There's a reason. But what really makes this interesting is that in the Greek, all of those words covenant, except for one, which doesn't actually appear in the Greek, and all of those words will, is the exact same Greek word. This becomes even more important to us when we realize that over half of the usages of the word, of this word in the New Testament, there's 36 usages, or 32 usages of it, sorry, in the New Testament, and that uh, over half of them appear in the book of Hebrews. So what does all this mean? What is the word? The word is diatheke. And this word means all of these things that I'm getting ready to talk about. It means a disposition, arrangement of any sort which one wishes to be valid. The last disposition which one makes of his earthly possessions after his death. A testament or will. So there's why we use diatheke and we translate it as will. Diatheke also means a compact or a covenant or a testament. An example would be God's covenant with Noah, etc. It's the same word for both places. The author of Hebrews is using the word diatheke like I'm going to use the word will in my next statement. Okay? I will leave my estate to my children in my will because it is my personal will. Right? Same word. Using it three different ways. But using it those three different ways really brings some things to it kind of powerfully. I mean, let me just go a little further and break it down for you a little bit so you can understand. I will. The red will. Expressing a strong intent or purpose about the future. 
leave my estate to my children in my will. A legal document containing instructions as to what should be done with one's money and property after one's death. Because that is my personal will. The faculty by which a person decides on and initiates an action. Are you tracking on this will thing real quick? Are you following what I'm saying about the usage of this word? Because you're maybe saying, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of all of this? Why get us thinking along this line? Because I want you to see in, in the word, in this passage of scripture, when you see covenant and when you see will, we are talking about the same word. It's critical. Don't, don't look at it just in the English. I say, listen, we can get stuff out of the scriptures in the English, but there are a reason, there, there are reasons we go back to the original manuscripts. Okay? Now, when we see this inside of this passage, I want to tell you the one place where the word diatheke is not present, actually, in the Greek. Verse 18, it says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. What it really says in the Greek is, Therefore, the first wasn't inaugurated without blood. They put the covenant in there as a translator to help us to understand we're talking that, that first is linked linguistically back to the diatheke. Okay? So even the first diatheke. So let's think about this. As we look at this, we have a diatheke, a covenant that God has with his people. Right? A covenant that God has with his people that is a binding thing. In verse 18, it says that that covenant is binding through blood. The culmination of this passage is in verse 22, that indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. This diatheke, this will, this covenant that God has with us, it's very important for us to realize that, he, that God is tying all of these things together. The old covenant, the new covenant, what he did is with his death on the cross. Let me just explain it maybe a little bit like this that will help you to, to follow where I'm going with this. There's three different applications of this, what I'm trying to say, and I think this will help you to, to understand. Okay, The first one is the natural application. The natural application causes us to pause and consider what our personal legacy will be. Do you have a will? Do you have a will? He talks about a will being established at death. He's telling us, I believe, that we need to really ponder this moment that we, that we die. This moment that we step off the planet into eternity, whether that's an eternity in heaven or whether that's an eternity in hell. There's no purgatory. It's hell or heaven when you die. There is no biblical support at all for purgatory, so don't think you're going to get a third option. There's no third option. Okay, but this isn't just a will that disposes of your property to your kids. It's not what I'm talking about, because that wasn't what God was worried about here. He wasn't worried just about dis disposing of his personal property, because, I mean, let's think about it. Jesus Christ said that the Son of Man, or he says that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. 
He didn't have anything to leave behind to anybody. Any physical property. So what does this mean? Is this talking about our physical stuff? No, I'm saying, what is your will? What is your last will and testament with, with everything that you have? What's the legacy you want to leave on the world? Do you want to leave part of your estate to a missions group? Or to a church? If you did that, would your kids contest your will? Because they would question whether or not you actually made your will in your right mind because you aren't doing that stuff now? I mean, if you left 25% of your estate or 10% of your estate or 50% of your estate or whatever to a missions organization or to a church or to, or to some uh, soup kitchen or, or something like that, would your kids contest that will in court because they said, mom and dad never lived this way while they were alive. So they could not have been in their right mind when they made this. See, we need to take this last will and testament more the direction that Jesus is going with it. The spiritual legacy that we leave behind. Because when He died on the cross, He implemented His last will and testament. And it was a spiritual legacy first and foremost. What He was leaving behind. And, and many of us, if we were to try to do something spiritual with our last will and testament, nobody would buy it. That's why we have Christian t-shirts that people wear that say, live your life so that your preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. (laughs) Live your life in such a way that, that I don't have to stand up there and say something that's not true about you because in the moment of grief, your kids need to hear something comforting. Your family needs to hear something encouraging. Don't make people question it. You know how many times I've seen funerals and been around funerals and preached funerals where people came up and said, that's really nice, those things that the preacher had to say, but they are not true. That guy was a turkey. Except for they don't use the word turkey. They use a word that would probably be inappropriate for me to use from the pulpit. Okay? That guy didn't live that life. He wants to put a last will and testament out there at his funeral to preach this particular message, to do all of these things, maybe even say something inside of his will. My wife and I have a will, like a legal and binding will. And, and the person who did our will said, you want to put some scripture at the beginning of it? Now, I'm not embarrassed to put scripture at the beginning of my will because I, I believe that everybody thinks that I really live this life and really want to follow him. But would people be shocked at your last will and testament when your will is read? if it started off with Scripture, because nothing in your life lined up with it, that's something to really wrestle with. We need to have this natural application. Okay? The natural application. If you... Please raise your hand. I'm not going to pick on you. If you have a legal and binding will, raise your hand. Okay? The rest of you, God mentions wills in this passage of Scripture. Get one. Get one. In the next year or two, we are going to bring in the Alliance gift planners who will come in and they will help you to figure out what you want to do with your estate when you die. 
They will write all of that stuff up and then they will give those documents to the lawyer that you choose and have that lawyer write up a will for you. It's very interesting what happens when the alliance does this. They basically take all of the money that the government would have got and they help you to figure out how to give it to your kids or to your church instead. Your choice. They won't tell you where to give it to, but they will take all of the money the government would have got and by legal means put it back into the place where you want it when you die. So get a will. It's going to cost you about 350 bucks. Inside of our will, it says where our kids go. We have willed our children's guardianship to people that we know are solid, born-again believers. Because we want our children raised in a home. Now, they're almost raised. So it's just down to Alicia at this point. But we have to get a will. The second application from this passage of Scripture is the comparative application. And it causes us to stop and see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are really not that different. This was my entire premise for preaching through the book of Hebrews. Right? When I very first started, what did I say? The Old Testament and the New Testament are not that different from one another. It is the same God who is the God of both. And now I want to draw your attention back to one particular verse in this passage of Scripture, and we're going to camp out here for just a minute or two. Therefore, this is verse 15, Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus rewrote His will. Not because He messed up. He always intended for His blood to pay for the transgressions of the first diatheke. That has been his plan since before time began. He knew that we would rebel. He knew that we would reject him. And he made a way in his infinite wisdom and knowledge. He created a plan based upon what he wanted to do, based upon wanting to bless us, based upon wanting to be in this relationship with us. And it's always been his plan. If you can't see that out of verse 15, then I want to encourage you to read it again. He's the mediator of a new covenant that redeems us from the transgressions under the old covenant. He is linking them together. They are linked. The Old Covenant exists to teach us what sin is. To teach us what righteousness is. The early church did not have the New Testament to preach Jesus from. They only had the Old Testament. They wrote the New Testament. They wrote it. Not realizing they were writing Scripture. They didn't go, well, I think I'm going to write a new book of the Bible. They were teaching and preaching Jesus from the Old Testament Scriptures. Maybe you're saying I'm reaching, reaching for straws, grasping for straws here. So, so let me just tell you what noted theologian N.T. Wright says of this passage. And N.T. Wright is a lot smarter than I am. 
Alright? For this argument, this is what he says. For this argument to work. He's talking about the argument that I'm making about them being linked together. For this argument to work, verses 18 through 22 must be taken to mean that the blood of the sacrificial animals through which the first covenant made through Moses came into being was somehow a representation of the self-giving love of God. He emphasizes that everything to do... He emphasizes that everything to do with the first covenant, the book itself in which it was written, the people with whom it was made, the tabernacle where the sacrifices would thereafter take place, and the vessels, I lost my place, of the various sorts that were to be used in the regular worship, everything had to be sprinkled with the blood. The blood of animals was saying, in relation to every possible aspect of the Israelites' regular worship with God, so the blood of the animals was saying, all this happens... Because I love you enough to give my own self, my own life to you. The animals are not just, it seems, representing the people who come to worship. They stand as a gift from God to his people with their death symbolized by the poured out lifeblood as a sign of God's own self-sacrificial love. Everything in the Old Testament Everything in the first diatheke was pointing to what Jesus would do in the second diatheke. The central message of the Bible is a man named Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Christianity is not this overly complicated thing. It's all about Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say it's not this overly complicated thing. Look, you can get lost inside the mysteries. There's, we are serving an infinitely perfect and wonderful God who if you stop to really sit down and think about him, you're going to be like, shut my mouth. He is too big. He is too awesome. I can't fathom all of this. But it's this message of Jesus, and it always has been this message of Jesus. Again, and it's one of my favorite passages to quote, I love the fact in Genesis 3.16, the Father in heaven out of the Father's own mouth, not through the mouth of a prophet. The Father, the Father prophesied the coming of His Son. He said in Genesis 3.16 to the serpent, to the devil, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust. I like doing emphasis on my words, right? I mean, you need to put emphasis on your words when you're reading Scripture. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust for the rest of your days. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. The Father, out of his own mouth, in the last moment when Adam and Eve got to see the Father face to face, said, I am not going to leave you in this estate. I am going to send one to redeem you. 
And everything in this Bible, everything is about Jesus. That's why it just makes my skin crawl when people tell me that the Old Testament and the New Testament are so different from one another. They're not. I think the reason that we want them to be so different is because the Old Testament tells us what sin is. And by the way, the New Testament has just as much to say about that. It says some very tough things inside of the New Testament as well about how we are supposed to live as Christians and, and how we're supposed to not live. But we don't like to link them together because it seems like, well, God, back in the Old Testament, he was just mad and angry and he just wanted to spank us and all of these things. You know how many preachers I've been around? And it's just a side note, but, I'm, but it's kind of on point. How many preachers I've been around that said, if God would just do one Ananias and Sapphira moment in each church in America right now, everything would change. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira came in and lied to God. And God struck them dead. They thought it was no big deal. You know how many people lie to me about their relationship with the Lord every day? And I think to myself, wow, you are putting yourself out there. I had somebody today look me in the face and straight up lie to me. I don't know who it was, it doesn't matter. Nobody but me and that person have any idea who it is. But they lied to me. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. You're lying to me about your faith. I know you're lying. You know you're lying. But besides us, man, God knows you're lying. And the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. They're linked together. The Diathekes, the covenants, are linked together permanently. I think we try to unlink them because, well, this way I get to do whatever I want to do. This antinomianism I preached of several weeks ago. Anti-law. But I digress. But there's a third application. The big application. The application that I want us to walk away from here today with. I mean, I want you to make a will. If you don't have a will, get one. Again, I said we're going to schedule the, the Alliance gift planners to come in. They're going to preach. They're going to teach what they could do on a Sunday morning. Then we're going to be able to make appointments. And by the way, if you choose to sit down with an Alliance gift planner, it will cost you $0.00 and 0 cents. The only thing you will pay is to the lawyer that you choose who will write up your legal will, get it signed and notarized so that it actually is legal when you die. You pay the alliance nothing. We just want to help people follow Scripture and to set up their legacy. Amen? You have the meeting with them privately and they do not report to me what you do with your stuff. So you need to know in confidence they're not coming here to try to impose my will on you. They want to know what you want to do and they want to help you. Some of you have ideas of things you'd like to do. So let's... We want that one, right? We want the application that everybody understands. The old and the new are linked together. But here's the New Testament application. It causes us to realize how absolutely amazing the grace of God is toward us. His last act as a man was not selfish. He instead died to secure our eternal well-being.
Verse 22 says these words. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But friends, the thing that we learned in the, in the first diatheke, in the first covenant, was that the only blood that works is perfect, spotless, unblemished blood. Messed up sacrifices don't do anything. It has to be a perfect sacrifice. And in the second diatheke, in the second covenant, the second will, the second promise of God, we learn something very important. That the perfect sacrifice was made to secure our eternal well-being. Jesus could have been selfish, but he chose not to. This is amazing. Jesus speaks about this in the Gospels. He says that, you know, a, a good man might even dare to die for somebody. But guys, he chooses to lay it for his friends, but he chooses to lay his life down for us while we are yet in our sinful, fallen state. While we're rebelling against him, while we're cursing him, while we're spitting at him, while we're mocking him, Jesus dies. To secure us eternally. We sang a song this morning. The words of it said, This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You would lay down your life. That I would be set free. Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. This amazing sacrifice happens only through the blood of Jesus. By God's design, His rules, a will, a covenant, a last will and testament can only be inaugurated by the shedding of the blood. And the only blood that would do would be His own. But here's the question I want to ask of you today. Are you esteeming that blood or are you trampling on it? Are you using His blood as an excuse to continue to live in rebellion? Or are you, or, or are you in awe and wonderment? Are you blown away by this? Does it cause you to want to fall down before Him and worship? Now maybe some of you aren't expressive like that. Okay, don't get caught up in my, in, don't take it too literal about falling down before Him. Get the heart of it. Does it make you want to praise Him? There's a lot of stuff I want to say this morning but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to say it instead. I want you right now to close your eyes. Not because I care if you're peeking, but I want, to, I want you to pull up an image in your mind. I believe that some of us right now, that the Lord is going to speak to us about ways that we are trampling this blood. 
ways that if we left a last will and testament that left something to the church or left something to a mission field, our kids would go, uh, what? What are those things that God is showing you in your mind's eye right now that you're doing to trample his blood? Some of the things that I think the Lord brings to my mind to help you to understand is are you meeting with a small group but really inconsistently because other things are more important and take precedence? And well, church, small group, my small group will always be there. I can always go to that, but I can't always go to this. Are you trampling on his blood by how you're acting and in conducting business at work? Like if the people that you work with found out that you were a Christian, they'd go, what? This guy is as shady as they come. Are you trampling on his blood by the way you're treating your husband or wife at home? I believe the Lord is bringing things to our minds. And if you're not getting a picture right now from God, say, Lord, am I not hearing? Or are you saying right now I'm not caught up in anything like that? It is very possible that there are people who right now aren't doing anything actively in their life to trample the blood. And if the Lord says you're not, okay. But for those of us that he's pointing out us trampling the diatheke, the blood of the diatheke, the blood of the covenant... Would you just right where you're at, repent of that? Repentance is saying, God, not I'm sorry for doing that thing that trampled your blood, but saying, God, I'm sorry for being the type of person who would do those kind of things. I don't just need to quit this action. I need you to create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Put me back on this path. Just confess those things to him right now. I'm going to pray for us and then as the worship team begins to play, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the, the final application. Father, I, I believe that you're speaking to us right now. Lord, some of us right now are being really encouraged because you're, not, you're telling us that right now, at this moment in time, there's no rebellion in us. And we thank you for that. And we ask you to give us uh, power to keep walking that out. Lord, others of us are, are seeing certain things. And we ask you to bring us to a place of repentance with these things, that we're sorry for being the kind of people who would have done these things. And Lord, others of us are seeing these things but are feeling condemnation and shame. And that's not from you. That's from the enemy. And so we ask you that you would step in and keep that condemnation and shame off of us and instead give us guilt that leads us to repentance. And God's people said, Amen. Homework for this week. Monday, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Tuesday, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Wednesday, Colossians 1, 15 through 20.
Thursday, Hebrews 13, 7 through 12. Friday, Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. And Saturday, Mark 14, 22 through 25. These are all scriptures that have to do with the shedding of blood being a necessary part of our salvation. We need to esteem the blood of Christ. 